You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 7. Hi, welcome back to Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the PubK Group. Later in this episode, I'll be talking with Arnold & Porter partners Tirza Lawler and Christian Sheehan about the repercussions of the Supreme Court's decision Polanski, which addressed the Department of Justice's authority to dismiss key TAM cases over the objections of a relator. But first, these headlines. In a recent decision, the Federal Circuit reversed and remanded a decision by the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals after it found the Board did not apply the proper de novo standard of review to a termination for default. The Court noted that when reviewing a termination, a Board must determine, as a threshold matter, whether the termination was based on actual problems with performance or whether the decision was pretextual. The Court found the CBCA erred by not making an express finding on this threshold issue. Instead, the Board focused too heavily on the contracting officer's subjective beliefs about the termination. The Department of Defense has updated its Other Transactions Guide for the first time since November 2018. The updated guide addresses law and regulatory changes as well as recommendations from the DoD Inspector General and Government Accountability Office. The guide also provides additional administrative guidance and best practices for reporting, funding, participation and validation of non-traditional defense contractors, and considerations for use of the OT consortium business model. The revised document is effective immediately, and you can find a link to the guidance in our show notes. The White House has released a 57-page roadmap for federal agencies to implement the administration's national cybersecurity strategy. The document currently includes more than 65 high-impact initiatives organized around five foundational pillars, defending critical infrastructure, disrupting and dismantling threat actors, shaping market forces to drive security, investing in a resilient future, and forging international partnerships. Each initiative has a target completion date and is assigned to a particular responsible agency with additional contributing entities identified. In 2017 and 2018, Congress passed laws banning federal agencies from using certain telecommunications products manufactured by foreign technology providers. However, in a recent report, the GSA Inspector General found that the Federal Acquisition Service had not removed these telecom and video surveillance devices from MAS contracts as Congress required. OIG found that FAS's self-certification and automated processes did not prevent contracts from offering the prohibited items. OIG also found that FAS had not taken adequate actions against repeat offenders, doesn't have a process to notify agencies about their purchase of any prohibited items, and didn't include subsidiaries and affiliates of those entities in its processes. The Eighth Circuit has blocked a recent Environmental Protection Agency rule requiring states to review and report any cybersecurity threats to their public water systems. Three states and two water utility associations sued EPA over the rule, arguing that the agency was required to put the regulation up for public comment before implementing it. The proposed change is blocked until the case goes to trial. While contractors deal with a new ban on the use of TikTok on devices used for government work, two Republican lawmakers say the Biden administration is still too lenient on the video sharing app. 
Representative Mike Gallagher and Senator Marco Rubio say that a new Department of Congress rule will allow TikTok to continue operating in the U.S. without addressing the risk posed by the Chinese government's access to user data. Commerce plans to approve TikTok's plan to store the data of U.S. users on domestic servers, but the lawmakers say that the plan does not eliminate the risk that sensitive information could still be shared with the Chinese government. In May, the District Court for the District of Columbia issued a decision that could affect how the Small Business Administration calculates contractors' annual receipts for the purpose of determining their eligibility for small business set-aside programs. In this case, the plaintiff filed a False Claims Act action after its size challenge failed at the Office of Hearings and Appeals. The plaintiff alleged that the awardee misrepresented its annual receipts in order to remain eligible for the set-aside. OHA denied the appeal, finding that SBA must calculate annual receipts based on the contractor's federal tax returns. However, in this recent False Claims Act case, the D.C. District Court noted that annual receipts may include income that contractors do not report on their tax returns. The court rejected SBA's argument that tax returns trump other financial information and that size determinations can be based only on tax returns. The court found these arguments contrary to SBA's own regulations. The Supreme Court's decision in Shoe v. Supervalue is the gift that keeps on giving for both plaintiffs and defendants. In light of its decision, the Supreme Court told the Fourth and Eleventh Circuits to revisit the cases of Sheldon v. Allergan and Olhausen v. Arriva Medical. In the first case, a whistleblower alleged Allergan misreported drug pricing information. The District Court's decision to dismiss was affirmed by the Fourth Circuit, but later vacated after an on-bank review. In the second case, a whistleblower accused Arriva Medical of several types of regulatory violations that resulted in false claims. While the District Court dismissed on particularity grounds, the 11th Circuit affirmed based on a lack of scienter. In another case before this 9th Circuit, the whistleblower and the Department of Justice argued that the decision in SuperValue precludes Sigma Corp's defense in a case alleging fraudulent avoidance of customs duties. While a jury found the defendant liable, on appeal, Sigma argued that it could not be penalized for making false claims if it had an objectively reasonable interpretation that a government order implementing the duties did not apply. The plaintiffs argue that this is essentially the same argument that the Supreme Court just rejected in SuperValue. However, the defense bar is also using SuperValue to argue for their clients. In recent cases, defendants have argued that the government failed to show that they knew about or consciously disregarded the risk that their claims were false. Defense counsel have also challenged the definition of conscious, substantial, and unjustifiable risk, arguing that the Supreme Court articulated a new three-part test that whistleblowers must pass. Counsel have also zeroed in on a sentence in the court's decision that suggested that if a defendant received notice of a compliance duty but neglected it, that person might have demonstrated reckless disregard. Defendants' counsel have questioned what amounts to received notice in this context. In another case with potentially broad implications, the Supreme Court in Polanski held that the government has the right to dismiss KTAM cases over the objections of a relator, but must first intervene in the case and must articulate a reasonable basis for its decision. While the decision itself was in line with expectations, some comments from the justices, particularly Justice Clarence Thomas, raised some questions about the basis for the government's authority and the legal framework of the False Claims Act itself. I recently spoke with Honored and Porter's Tirza Lawler and Christian Sheehan to get their take on the decision. Tirza and Christian, welcome back to the podcast. Let's start again introducing yourselves to our listeners. They're probably very familiar with you uh, by this point. Uh, we've seen so much of you this year with a rather exciting year 
for FCA developments, but let's uh, let's go ahead and just say hello. Sure. Thanks, Bill, for having us back again. We appreciate it. So I'm Tirza Lawler. I'm one of the co-chairs of our False Claims Act practice here at Arnold and Porter in, in D.C. And happy to be here talking about an exciting Supreme Court term. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be back with you and Tirza. Christian Sheehan, I'm a white-collar partner in the D.C. office of Arnold and Porter, and I focus primarily on what we're going to be talking about today, False Claims Act. So let's start with this decision, Polanski. Give us a little bit of background on what did the court say and were there any surprises in this decision? Sure. So there had been a split of authority on few issues related to the government's um, dismissal authority under the False Claims Act. So there's a provision of the False Claims Act, which we call C2A, uh, it's the, the subsection of the statute, that authorizes the government to dismiss cases over a relator's objection. But then there were a number of questions, including what standard of review should be applied to a government motion to dismiss, when a motion could be brought, and sort of what procedural steps the government had to take to invoke this authority. And so just a little bit of background on this case. Started way back in 2012, there was a QTAM that was filed, and the government declined to intervene. And the case proceeded to discovery with the defendant seeking documents and deposition testimony from the government. So then in 2019, the government filed a motion to dismiss under C2A, which the district court granted. It was then appealed to the Third Circuit. The Third Circuit affirmed, and it addressed sort of both of the prongs that I was talking about. So what the government has to do procedurally, the Third Circuit said the government has to intervene to file a motion to dismiss. And it said that the standard for dismissal is governed by Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. So there have been a couple other approaches taken by different courts. The D.C. Circuit had said the government has unfettered discretion to dismiss, and the Ninth Circuit had adopted an arguably more stringent, but still not very stringent, test that required the government to show a, a basically a rational basis. So much to, I think, most of our surprise, the Supreme Court granted cert in this case. While there was a clear split of authority among the circuits, it really wasn't outcome determinative in most cases, which is the other, you know, one of the key criterion that the Supreme Court usually looks for. So we were surprised that the court took the case, but it did. And in a decision issued, I guess, about a month ago now, in, a in an eight to one decision authored by Justice Kagan, the court had does have the authority with good cause shown to intervene and move to dismiss at any point in the litigation, even if it initially declined to intervene. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Justice Thomas's dissent and some constitutional concerns he raised, but he also he disagreed with that. And he said that the, the government's authority to dismiss is limited to when it declines to intervene at the outset of the case during the seal period. But eight justices, eight justices agree that the government can move to dismiss at any time. And then with respect to the standard, the Supreme Court held that the Third Circuit was correct to look to Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 41, the voluntary dismissal standard. And the court made clear that the government should, be, should get substantial deference here, and it will be the rare case where the government cannot make the showing that's required to, to dismiss under Rule 41. So I'll stop there. That, that, that's sort of the basic uh, contours of the case. 
So what does this mean in practice? What are the implications that you see for defendants and, and plaintiffs in, in FCA cases going forward? It's a good question, Bill. One, the cynical, the cynical response is it doesn't mean much because experience has shown that the government rarely exercises this power, this authority to move to dismiss non-intervened key tams, much to the chagrin of the defense bar. Folks will recall that um, a few years back, a memo was leaked that had been written by Michael Granston with the commercial litigation branch that laid out the six or seven factors that the department attorneys are supposed to consider when assessing whether to exercise this authority. I think some statistics were shared in response to some questions that the department received from Senator Grassley, who our listeners will know is a huge proponent of the False Claims Act and the whistleblower provisions. And the numbers back then were, you know, I don't have them committed to memory. It was fewer than 100 times had the had the department ever exercised this authority. And, you know, anecdotally in the recent past, I think we can think of maybe one case where they moved to dismiss I think in a Tamiflu case. Yeah, um, so, so thanks, Christian. So the, the point is that maybe we'll all be surprised, but I wouldn't expect the floodgates to be open and for us to see the department, you know, all of a sudden, you know, using this now confirmed, very deferential authority to move to dismiss key TAMs. I will say that one thing I suspect will happen is that, you know, that's not gonna, that's not going to dissuade defendants and defense counsel from asking. So I suspect DOJ is going to see an uptick in requests for C2A meetings for companies to come in and, and ask the government to use the authority. But the cynic in me says it may not move the needle much. I don't know. Christian, what do you think? No, I don't. I think it's just the government's going to have to say no. They're just going to end up. That's the, the result. The government's just going to say no, because more people will ask and the result's going to be the same. I mean, but, you know, maybe maybe we're wrong and maybe the government will take a fresh look at this now with some certainty in the standard, but I'm skeptical. Now, going back to something Christian mentioned, Justice Thomas's dissent, I, I found it a little surprising. As we've talked about on the last podcast, these are the government's cases. The relator brings the case on behalf of the government, so the government owns it. So the idea that there is no option for the government to move to dismiss was a little surprising to me. More interesting were, as Christian alluded to, the, the constitutional questions that Justice Thomas raised. So what's that about and what what did he say? Christian, you want to take that or you want me to? Um, well, he said that there's a substantial question about the constitutionality of the key time provisions of the False Claims Act. And then he raised, you know, a couple of potential concerns I think the appointments clause was one that he raised. But I mean, the bottom line is that he invited in future cases, a, basically a direct challenge to the constitutionality of the key TAM provisions. And both Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett in a concurrence where they agreed with the outcome, a majority opinion, they agreed that there are substantial questions about the constitutionality of the statute. And I mean, that's three justices right there. You need four for a cert grant. And I believe that Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh are typically in the majority. And so they're a pretty good indicator of, you know, maybe where the court is, what the court's thinking is. So I think we will, you will certainly see, you'll certainly see defendants now raising this challenge, where I think probably before it was considered sort of a fringe theory. I mean, if you remember when Attorney General Barr had written something years ago 
questioning the constitutionality of the Keaton provisions in, in his confirmation hearings, he said, oh, no, 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 Senator Grassley's questions, it's all fine. But now you, have, here. <laughs> yeah, now you have at least three Supreme Court justices saying maybe not. Right. And in fact, the chief, Chief Justice Roberts also, while he didn't join the concurrence, he did express some sympathy for the constitutional argument. I think specifically what Justice Thomas said is that the key TAM provisions violate Article 2 of the Constitution, which kind of lodges the executive power, including civil litigation, with the president, with the executive branch, not with all these, quote, private attorneys general who have been deputized through the key TAM provisions. So, you know, it's really... I, I would say, and I, and I apologize, we may have said this when we kind of teased that we were going to be talking about this before, that all eyes were kind of on Schutte this term, Schutte and, and Proctor, the two False Claims Act Center cases, the knowledge cases that were decided at the beginning of June. And, you know, as we've discussed, you know, Christian said, you know, the C2A case, you know, in, in Polanski, the issue was not outcome determinative. The government so rarely exercises the authority. We were all surprised and that they had that the Supreme Court had granted cert. And because it affects so few cases, I think folks were much more focused on what the court would say in Schutte and Proctor. But then, you know, Justice Thomas threw a curveball and through his dissent, I think, as Christian said, has opened up a whole new argument. Defendants had raised this issue before, but it never really got much traction in, in the courts. But um, one of my colleagues, you know, we were visiting about the opinion and he said, frankly, it would be malpractice for defense counsel to not raise a constitutional challenge every time you file a motion to dismiss at this point. So I think that is a significant implication. And, and our expectation is that you're going to you're going to see these issues getting briefed in the lower courts and percolating up. And given what Christian said about it only taking four justices to vote for a grant, this issue could very well end up in the Supreme Court, you know, in the not too distant future. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, at least I personally, I thought I found it interesting that this came from Justice Thomas, who has, you know, written two of the, mo the most significant FCA, you know, decisions recently in um, Schutte and Escobar without any hint, right, that maybe the False Claims Act was unconstitutional. So just that found it interesting that that he was the one, you know, sort of to first raise this. Yeah, it's very surprising thoughts. I mean, you could just blow a hole right in the in the middle of the law if it if it goes in the right direction. It's it's astounding. Well, thank you, thank you for for those insights. This will definitely be something that you know we'll all be keeping an eye on, obviously. And we'll good chance we'll have you back frequently again in the future if these kind of cases keep coming up. I appreciate your time and and thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for having us, Bill. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Take care. Thanks again to Tirza and Christian for joining me today and for those insights. And that brings us again to the end of another episode of Bonafide Needs. Thank you for joining me today for this episode. For more in-depth coverage of the topics we discussed in this podcast, you can find links to our primary sources in the show notes for this episode. For daily updates on developments in government contract law and regulations, compliance matters, and cybersecurity, you can subscribe to PubK News at pubkgroup.com. For additional insights into these developments for government contractors, you can follow multiple topical blogs at arnoldandporter.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and comment. 
We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and other distribution sites. For Arnold and Porter and the Pub K Group, I'm Bill Olfer. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olfer and Tina Chen.